You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I drove a mate's car here to record this show. I drove about 20k and it's a late model, medium-sized car, so I burned about 2 litres of fuel. If it was thump and pig, it would have been closer to 4 litres. Which, you know, apart from things like park, packing up the camp and parking, is why I borrowed his V-dub. Now, last night I was talking to some people about going up to the 50th anniversary of the Tent Embassy next January in Canberra. And a rough, off-the-top-of-my-head calculation is that on the highway in the thumping pig, I'd use about 140 litres of diesel to get there. I'd be carrying other people and equipment and all that stuff, of course, but it still sounds like a lot of fossil fuel, doesn't it? Well, if you compare it to me mate's V-Dub, or another mate's Prius even, it does. But it's not even enough fuel to get a modern jet fighter off the ground. And once it was off the ground, that much fuel would keep it in the air if it were, <coughs> excuse me, if it were flying at the maximum efficiency um, and altitude for about three minutes. Same as it take me to drive the pig to Canberra. If it had to turn or climb or descend, you take that down to two minutes. When it does land, and this is every time it lands, it has to be thoroughly cleaned, with chemicals so toxic that the cleaners need to wear full hazmat suits and breathing apparatus. The chemicals would strip the skin off your hands in a moment, and fumes would knock you out immediately. And that's not to mention the long-term effects of the detergents and solvents on the environment. There is still a health warning in place, for example, around Rathbase Williamstown, up near Newcastle, um to do with chemical pollutants that were supposedly phased out years ago and replaced by a different chemical that just happens to have the same name. Now, those figures are just for a flyover, without a single shot being fired, in anger or otherwise. Also, that's just a standard clean, not the 200 flight hour clean, that needs to go somewhat deeper, stripping the engines right out of the jet aircraft. Then, remember, if you're going to spend billions on a plane like the F-35 or the F-22 or the F-16, because they all use similar fuels and cleaning regimens, you're going to want to shoot off a few missiles, aren't you? I mean, they weren't designed just to give the patriotic crowds a thrill of invasion day, after all. Now, as I speak here, I hope listeners don't misunderstand me and think in talking about the environment and, you know, the cost of weapons to the planet, that I'm at all discounting the actual pain and suffering of the people they're aimed at. I am, I have to admit, somewhat of a speciesist. In fact, more than somewhat. My position, oh, look, best be summed up by an argument I had with a prominent greeny bloke, God, 30 years ago, when I spoke to them about using racism in the campaign against um, a woodchip giant, Harris Dye Shower. He told me, and I'll quote you, he said, if I can use racism to save a tree, I will. To which I replied, if I could chop down a tree, no, it's going to land on a fucking racist's head, I will. And, you know, my position has mellowed a tad over the intervening years, as I suspect his has, and I don't believe that it's an either-or argument. But if anyone wanted to draw that line today, I'd still fall on the same side of it. But having said that, in the light of the immediate and present threat posed by climate change, and Australia's abysmally poor showing at the recent COP26 in Glasgow, it's probably time I devoted some time on a Friday rave 
to the role of the military in what is probably the greatest existential threat that has ever faced us as a people and our planet, and that's climate change. It's five o'clock on Friday afternoon. My name's Jacob, here with you on Community Radio Station 3CR, and this is a Friday Rave. You know, in recent times, there have been a couple of issues that have really redefined Australia's role on the world stage. The first, of course, is the COP26 climate talks, which saw Australia rate last on climate policy the only country to achieve a zero score in that category. Zero, nil, nada. The second event that put Australia on the world stage was, of course, the AUKUS announcement. An announcement <coughs> that has been greeted by, a, well, let's call it a narrow range of words, from condemnation to concern by just about every country in our region. Yet, you know, I haven't heard any analysis of how the two are interlinked. So I'm going to try to make some linkages here. And the linkages go both ways. At the top of this week's show, I spoke just a little about the fuel use of a jet fighter. The figures I used were based on a new 35s. Granted, jet fighters are by nature heavy fuel users, but then the military is full of heavy fuel use. Put aside, you know, look at the Navy and put aside the proposed new subs and their nuclear power plants just for the moment. And let's look at an Anzac class frigate, about 4,000 litres an hour, every hour, 168 hours a week. Then, of course, there's all the normal day-to-day operations of an organisation heavily reliant on transport technology. Yet none of this needs to be reported, this might surprise you, you probably know this already, none of this needs to be reported as part of Australia's mandatory reporting of greenhouse gas emissions. Australia actually does report some of its military emissions, but the figures are so small they're laughable. The bottom line is that as long as there are no mandatory reporting requirements for military emissions, Any targets set by international bodies such as the UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow are meaningless. Nonetheless, Australia's wooden spoon effort needs to be recognised. It is, after all, the worst policy in the world, in a world of worst policies. Now, how does this connect with AUKUS? Well, a number of ways. Firstly and foremostly, the AUKUS decision seen in juxtaposition with the climate policy obviously show the priorities of the Australian Government. While we cannot afford to implement any policies aimed at reducing the catastrophic consequences of climate change, we can afford, it seems, to spend $120 billion on submarines. Now let's suppose, just for a moment, I know it's not real, but just as a mind exercise, let's suspend disbelief for a bit and entertain the thought that Australia was at risk of being invaded by an expansionist China because when you cut through the mealy-mouthed bullshit, that's what's being sold to us as the reason behind our increased military posturing. Our need for submarines in our hooking up formally with the US and the UK as a military bloc. AUKUS. Now, if it were China's priority 
to invade Australia, some attack submarines, I dare say, wouldn't help. Um, you remember when COVID broke out, our response was so laughably slow, apart from introducing a raft of laws, of course. China, on the other hand, started the project of building hospitals in about a week. You heard about the first two, but about a dozen have been built since the pandemic started. We have not built a single extra hospital bed. So, with the efficiency of a centralised economy, I reckon China's military leaders plan to invade Australia. May say, well, Australia have eight subs in 20 years' time. Better here, you know, we'd better build another 100 extra autonomous anti-submarine drones next month. And they are, by the way. China developed autonomous underwater drones years ago. And this is, you know, this year they undertook tests in the Taiwan Strait. Now, the age of submarines may not quite be over yet, but I reckon in 20 years' time they'll just about be done and dusted. All right, so where are we up to? Nuclear submarines will not protect us against China. If, and it's a big if, they did plan to invade, will AUKUS help? Will ANZUS help? Well, you know, it seems to me that an attack on Australia would be an attack on the West anyway. Australia's finances, so intertwined with the US's, most of the top 200 Australian companies listed on the ASX are in fact majority owned by foreign capital mainly US-based super funds, investment funds. So if China attacked, and if the US and UK did come to our aid, it would only be to protect their own interests, just like every other time they pitched in to defend and protect another country. And any defence against such an attack wouldn't be about defending Australian financial interests, because they're not actually Australian. So, I guess what I'm saying, or rather I'm asking is when we say China will attack Australia or we need to defend Australia, how about we start with the question, what do we actually mean by Australia? <clears throat> and this is putting aside, of course, for the moment, the fact that Australia is an occupied country on Indigenous land that's never been ceded. Putting that aside, people are talking about Australia. What do the government mean by Australia? What do they mean? Oh, wow, if China attacked Australia for its resources, as I said, you know, remember Australian people don't actually own the resources anyway. You know, we don't own the resources. The, as I said, the top 200 companies are owned by foreign, you know, majority owned by foreign investment firms. So what do we mean? Do we mean territorial integrity? Well, we're selling off the farm at an alarming rate. The rate of foreign ownership of agricultural land is growing every year, and mining land. Now. Again, don't misunderstand me. This isn't a nationalist rant. I don't give a shit what country capital owns, you know, owns the land of Australia, what, com what country it's based in. But the idea of defending territorial integrity on the one hand and selling off the farm on the other points to the truth that the Australian military, the Australian government, AUKUS, isn't actually about defending territorial integrity any more than it is about defending mythical Australian capital as distinct from global capital. What do they mean? Maybe they mean protecting our environment. Well, I don't think I even need to put that argument after Morrison's Glasgow performance. They're not even pretending. Maybe they mean defending our lifestyle. Again, cutting funding to health, education, housing and social security in real terms belies that one. 
So what do they mean? Well, I'll tell you what they mean. They actually mean defending the global capital that is invested in this country we call Australia. And by defending the global capital, they don't mean against invasion. They mean defending the right of the capital to accumulate in fewer and fewer hands. AUKUS, the announcement was less about submarines when you actually read the communiques, and don't take my word for it, just type, you know, AUKUS joint communique in your favourite search engine, or should just duck, duck, go rather than Google, and have a look at the documentation. And the the bilateral Osmin talks too, you know, the bilateral talks between Australian and American Secretaries of Defence. And that ended the day before the AUKUS announcement, and they were in reality, if not technically, the first AUKUS meeting between Australia and the United States. Anyhow, AUKUS, as I said, the announcement was less about submarines and it was about combining our military industries, interoperability, hardening military supply chains, host and troops, space systems and weapon systems. It was about integrating the three countries' military and industrial sectors to counter the growing financial importance of China. Now, let me make that clear. Let me say it again. AUKUS is about nothing more than instituting a whole-of-society approach on behalf of one part of global capital to counteract the growth of a rival part of global capital. Nothing more, and most importantly, nothing less. So how does this affect climate change? Remember this episode of Friday Rose about climate change. Well, because when we realise that this is the actual story, we can see they are willing to throw everything under a bus to achieve it people and the planet. Funds will need to be and are being transferred from more socially benign and even socially beneficent areas towards the military. A case in point is the way the government recently increased uni fees for humanities as opposed to engineering and technical sciences. Every time a weapons company fills the gap of education funding, it's not only a new military involvement in our schools, but taken up the space of one that could be more socially beneficent. One less space for the non-military. And they know this. They've been onto it for years. They've known it for years. They've talked about it for years. Let's have a listen to US President Eisenhower way back in 1953. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. The cost of one modern heavy bomber is this a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000 population. It is two fine, fully equipped hospitals. It is some 50 miles of concrete. We pay for a single fighter plane with a half million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. The sweat of our labours, the genius of our scientists, the hopes of our children. 
Well, probably a good time to remind you to listen to Friday Rave on Community Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial through all the W's at 3cr.org.au or maybe um, you're listening to a Friday Rave through your favourite podcast client. But yeah, that was a quote from um, President Eisenhower while he was president in 1953. And we was referring to the uh, military-industrial complex and the, the cost of weapons. Now, I'd like to make a 21st century climate emergency addition to his famous speech. I'd like to say something along the lines of every submarine built, every rare earth mined, every ballistic missile costs the food we eat, the water we drink, and the air we breathe. Because that's the cost of the arms industry. Now, there are a few ways that AUKUS affects climate change. I'm going to go through them. Firstly, the cost, of course, of AUKUS, as Eisenhower said. And it's not just subs. It's troops and weapons hosting and increased deployments that are all very real costs that could be used to mitigate the emergency, as well, of course, as providing the houses, hospitals and schools we need. This theft from the public purse is compounded by the effects of poverty, of course, which then reduces a society's ability to counteract the wishes and the intents and the programs of the ones who have the money, to militarise the militarisation, the securitization of our society, the military industrial complex. Now secondly, by the increased use of fossil fuels and other destructive chemicals that will come, not just from Australia's military, but from the increased presence in the region and visits to our shores by the US and UK militaries. And by the way, um, there's currently a British um, nuclear-powered sub in Frio, as we speak. But not just directly by the military either. Um, other aspects of AUKUS are space domination, where we've seen the number of satellites double in recent years and set to redouble in the next year and a half and redouble again in the year after that. And satellite-launching rockets in themselves destroy heaps of ozone in our atmosphere, in our stratosphere. Now, the third point I want to raise is our neighbours, as our neighbours have warned. This will lead to a regional arms race, which in turn will extend the above issues well beyond Australia's borders, or America's borders, or the UK's borders. It will in turn increase regional tension, not just between states, but between states and the people. As poor people, resistance groups in poorer states already see, you know, their scant resources diverted to the wealthy. They see more of these resources diverted towards militarism, basically because of the regional arms race that AUKUS has put on steroids due to a perceived but unreal threat from China. Ah, my fourth point. AUKUS isn't just about the military. It's about a tighter and closer cyber security infrastructure. You know, only a few days after the AUKUS announcement, every Australian spy boss, that's ASIO, ASIS, DIO, ASD, ONA, they were all in Washington to be briefed on the new arrangements. This is about a subgroup 
within the Five Eyes. And it's become clear in recent years, thanks to the work of people like Dave McBride and Julian Assange, Ed Snowden and others, that these spy agencies are not just about national security in the military sense. They are about manipulating governments and markets in favour of Western capital at the expense of the people, and yes, at the expense of the environment. The aspects of AUKUS that do with closer market and technology integration will inevitably exacerbate the current accumulation of wealth into fewer and fewer pockets. Now this whole wealth-begetting-wealth scenario, not the trickle-down effect but the trickle-up effect of um, capitalism will only further sideline environmental considerations. Um, Obviously there's no need to, as long as they're making the money, they're making the rules and they've no reason to listen to the rest of us, and it will sideline our concerns and considerations precisely at this time of climate emergency when the redistribution of wealth and power is needed to fund grassroots solutions to the mess that the wealthy have made. And again, all that is without a single shot being fired in anger. Now, finally, history shows us that military build-ups always and inevitably lead to war. Hopefully, not a full-scale one, but the increased weaponization means weapons will be used, not just in anger, but in training as well. Missiles carrying toxic loads of propellants, explosives and heavy metals like DU can only increase as new military postures, new forms of interoperability, new weapons, new command structures are tested and troops are trained. Because after all, AUKUS is about fomenting the concept of war, not directly against China, as I say, because I believe everyone knows how bad that'll be for business. That'll be catastrophic. But about creating so much tension that regional wars become inevitable. Now, even small-scale regional conflicts have come to be based around the destruction of energy infrastructure, and you don't need me to tell you about the consequences of even one oil well, one bulk oil ship being taken out at war. War, at any scale, is the most destructive attack on the environment that humans can undertake. Yeah, you're with me, Jacob, on a Friday rave on Community Radio, Radical Radio 3CR. Now, at the start of the show today, I said that the linkages between climate change and AUKUS, that is to say between climate change and increased militarism, work both ways. Because while it's abundantly clear we all understand that militarisation exacerbates climate change, climate change also exacerbates militarisation. The effects of climate change that we're already seeing are an increase, of course, in catastrophic weather events, droughts, floods and, of course, fire. Now, it's hard to know what part of the world to start in, but I'm going to try Syria as the case in point. Back in 2006, um, a five-year drought started, which has been referred to as, you know, possibly the worst long-term drought and most severe set of crop failures since agricultural civilization began in the Fertile Crescent many millennia ago. Now, this drought led to 80% of livestock dying and about 75% of all farms failing. Now, what do you reckon happens to an agrarian society when three-quarters of everything just disappears? 
people flee from the cities to work, primarily to start with young men. But there is no work. So you have thousands of pissed off, disenfranchised, poor young men hanging around the fringes of the city, unwanted by the city folk, because, of course, they represent competition for the resources which are scarce enough to start with due to the same drought which led them to leave the country and come to the city. I mean, it's that that continuous circle thing. Um, Is it any wonder, you know, they can't get secure work, they can't get wages, they can't go home, that they become radicalised and bitter? Is it any wonder when religious or patriotic nutjobs enlist these young men? In much the same way, I've got a tested side, patriotic and religious nutjobs recruit disenfranchised young blokes on the streets of Melbourne. We've seen them at some of the rallies. Is it any wonder when those already, you know, with power in the city, reject them, force them out of town? And then it's on, and they're open to manipulation from all sides. Not so much the religious nutters, they're just the shock troops, but the actual powers that be that seek to profit from the turmoil. Remember, this isn't all that dissimilar to what happened in Afghanistan in the late 70s. Anyway, the same drought on the other side of the um, country, the other side of the area from Syria, um, Iraq, um, led to the growth of ISIS um, in 2011-2012 and a few years later in 2014 they declared their global caliphate, you know. The so-called Arab Springs that saw, oh God, saw both Western socialists and Western imperialists wetting themselves in glee in 2011, claiming the people were rising against oppression on one hand or rising in support of capitalism in another. Actually, it was triggered in large part by bread prices as a result of the same drought. Bread prices went through the roof. Now I say triggered because I'm not arguing here that the drought was the only cause of unrest. God knows that the exploitation of the region was going on at such a pace that something had to give. But at the very least, climate change-induced drought was a force multiplier and a catalyst for the events which ultimately we are still seeing the consequences of. You know, the Arab Spring, for example, was used by the Western world to set up the destruction of the Libyan government, which led to non-Libyans feeling, you know, they had to get out of Libya, through Algeria, go through a radicalisation process before sacking Mali. A little further south, in 2007, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon named the conflict in Sudan's Darfur region the world's finest, sorry, first Climate change conflict. Well, it was a climate change conflict. I doubt it was the first. You know, this led to a research project aimed at being the first comprehensive examination of the potential impact of global climate change on armed conflict in sub-Saharan Africa. That's a mouthful. Now, the research has found a correlation between various um, temperature rises and the amount of conflict and came out with a rather shocking prophecy that with a 1% increase in temperature leading to a 4.5 increase in civil war in the same year and a 1% increase the following year, by the year 2030, based on average data from 18 climate models, this will translate to approximately 54% increase in armed conflict in the region. 
and this of course will lead to an argument for greater securitisation and militarisation, some of the poorest countries in the world, which of course then leads to even more conflict in itself in the disastrously self-fulfilling and self-referential and pattern of social and financial relationships. Over in South America, the effects on climate change have already been seen. Not just in Amazonia fires, but in water scarcity across the continent. This again leads to a move to the cities and results in disenfranchisement. In Guyana, indigenous people have largely left their savannah grasslands and um, living on the edge of cities. There is a crisis waiting to happen. In the Andean highlands of Bolivia and Peru, lakes are disappearing and people are moving. Right at the time when the region has been plundered for rare earths to feed the technological needs of the Western world, and of course the military. Now these dislocations of people in South America come at a time of increased Western exploitation and um, are creating a climate of increased securitisation of South American countries and were, if not the cause, at the very least a significant contributing factor to the Obama administration's renewed push into the securitisation of South America. Closer to home, in South Asia, you know, major climate events are behind the movement of people on Bangladesh's border with Assam in India. Now, a report you may not have heard of released at COP26 is called State of the Climate in Southwest Pacific 2020. And it spoke of the looming disasters associated with changes occurring in ocean circulation, temperature, acidification, deoxygenization, and, um, of course, rising sea level. It spoke about more than one in five of everyone in Vanuatu and Fiji have been adversely affected by climate change. And, yeah, the military know that this is happening. You know, new reports coming out from the US military establishment name 11 countries that it deems at risk of climate-induced conflict. Afghanistan, Myanmar, India, Pakistan, North Korea, Guatemala, Haiti, Honduras, Nicaragua, Colombia and Iraq. And while this may well be true, it's also interesting to note that these are largely places the US already have a military interest. A White House report takes things one step further suggesting that China and Russia could exploit climate change to drive migrants to the US and its allies. Read Australia. So what's the answer? Work to mitigate the effects of climate change? Nah. Better to beef up security and build up military and create scenarios that justify their military build-up at the expense of the planet. And they do it all in a way that makes those causing the problems richer and those suffering poorer. Isn't capitalism wonderful, my friends? On a final note, I want to talk about two dates. The first date is today. I'm actually recording this on Thursday, out of town, 11th of November. It's Remembrance Day. And it's, of course, appropriate that we talk about military issues on Remembrance Day. As I always say, lest we remember. I'm going to play you a little song at the end of this, just on the podcast. Not happening on the um, live t- and the um, 3CR version, but it's happening on the podcast. 
And the other date I want to mention is the 10th of December. 10th of December is Human Rights Day. And renegade activists are working with a mob of other organisations in our Melbourne to do a protest based, a Human Rights Day rally, let's call it, based on AUKUS, but not just limited to AUKUS. We're going to hook up with the refugee rally at the park. It will be started at the State Library at 5 o'clock is on um, Friday the 10th of December. And we'll be hooking up with the refugee rally at the Park Hotel shortly after that, going for a little bit of a march, a little bit of a wander. Um, other events are happening in Sydney on the 11th. There might be another little march in Melbourne on the 11th, but it's all happening on um, Human Rights Weekend in Australia. And because, as we say at Renegade Activists, the heart of every just cause is the cause of justice, we won't just be talking about AUKUS. But on the other hand, we will just be talking about AUKUS because AUKUS brings together, as I've said, a whole-of-society approach. You can't talk about climate change without talking about militarism. You can't talk about militarism in Australia without talking about AUKUS. You can't talk about refugees without talking about militarism. You can't talk about militarism without talking about AUKUS. And while we're on the subject of human rights... Who knows, by then we may have an answer from the British court system about what they want, what they see, what they decide for the fate of one of Melbourne's own, Julian Assange. <clears throat> so one way or another, we may have something to celebrate. I don't hold me hopes up. We um, probably need to renew the campaign to force the Australian government to bring him home. But until then, here's a little bit of Leon Russellson to see you out of the podcast with Remembrance Day at the Cenotaph. I've been Jacob, there's been a Friday rave, I'll rave at you more next week, and I'll see you on the 10th of December Human Rights Day at the State Library at 5 o'clock. I don't want to die, I want to go home. I don't want to go to the trenches no more Where the whiz-bangs and shells do whistle and roar I don't want to go over the sea To where the alley man will shoot at me I don't want to die I want to go home It was Remembrance Day at the Cenotaph The rain was falling fast The Queen was there with her auntie Raj Watching the old comrades march past There were wreaths of scarlet flowers And we wore our poppies with pride the brass bands played funeral music And one or two people cried When Big Ben chimed eleven We solemnly bared our heads And stood for the two-minute silence To remember the glorious dead It was at that sacred moment that I heard an eerie sound A ghastly, ghostly stirring 
seemed to come from under the ground And a voice rose up out of the darkness A voice that was coarse and ill-bred Saying, I am the voice of the fallen And I am the voice of the dead I speak for the silent slaughtered The ones who rot under the grass And we don't want your two-minute silence So stuff it up your ass. Then I thought I heard an explosion And a kind of a sob or a laugh And a faint aroma of corpses Hung round the cenotaph The Queen stood straight as a ramrod And none of the mourners stirred In spite of the two-minute silence No one had heard a word Though it seems a small bunch of fanatics Had tried to dishonour the day By shouting, remember Biafra But they were soon hustled away Then the two-minute silence was over And we heard the wind and the rain And from horse guards parade a gun sounded And normal life started again It was Remembrance Day at the Cenotaph The Queen was dressed in black The Bishop conducted a service For the ones who never came back 